Please do sit. And we're going to come to this passage from Mark's Gospel. But as we do so, let me pray. I'm going to use two verses from the end of a very well-known psalm, Psalm 139, because this is a passage which I think uh, we need to allow God to search us as we look at it. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Through Christ and by the power of the Spirit, Amen. Well, if someone with all power said to you, what do you want me to do for you? What would be your response? What do you want? What do you really, really want? What do you want? See, in that moment when you're asked that question, you have an opportunity to grasp hold of whatever it is that would make life worth living for you. You grab it. What would be your answer? What do you want me to do for you? That would really focus my thoughts. Give me well, what? Jesus' disciples, James and John, they asked him to do for them whatever they wanted. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Well, the request is recorded in Mark chapter 10, verse 37. James and John said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. As one old writer puts it, these words are a bright mirror of human vanity. And yet, in actual fact, if you think about it, there's a real mixture here. There's a mi the awful, that's there, but there is the sublime in there too. Because there's deep insight. Jesus has just announced that he is shortly to be killed. And yet, James and John know that he is going to inherit a glorious kingdom. There's insight, but James and John, their request is all about getting themselves ahead of the other disciples. They can't bear the thought of just being part of the crowd along with the others. Or worse, imagine that one of their friends, one of their fellow disciples, got the top t seats at the table ahead of them. What do James and John want? Well, for all their real spiritual insight, they want to be first, more powerful, better recognized, more highly honored than everyone else, and they want it all on Jesus' coattails. Well, Jesus then answers them in a, with an answer that exposes their total ignorance about what his glorious kingdom is and how it all works. Verse 38, he says to them, asks them, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? He's talking about his imminent death. He's going to lay down his life for the world. He's going to drink the cup of God's judgment in place of all who put their trust in him. That's the road his route to glory will take. Are James and John up for that? Yeah, they say, we'll do that without having the first foggiest clue what they're talking about. They probably think that Jesus is really saying to them something like, look, guys, you're going to have to endure a bit of hardship along the way. Um, you're a bit of hard work on your rise to the throne. And they're like, yeah, no problem. We can do that. 
true, says Jesus, you will experience life and death, uh, the life and death of of self-sacrifice. One day, James and John, it's coming to you both. And it did. But seats of preferment in Jesus' kingdom, to sit at his right and their left, that's none of their business. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, it's none of my business either. God the Father, he gives the seats. And as we're going to see, such considerations of where we will be seated should have no place in our thinking. Well, the remaining ten disciples, they hear what James and John have asked. And verse 41 tells us that they were indignant. You see, James and John couldn't bear the idea that someone else might be promoted ahead of them. The others can't bear the idea that James and John might be promoted ahead of them. All 12 disciples basically seem to think that greatness is about beating the others, getting one up on the others, more power than them, more recognition, more status. Because to them, greatness is what we call a zero-sum game. You know how a zero-sum game works? There's a limited amount of cake, so the more I eat, the less you do. The more you eat, the less I get. The score must remain on zero. So if I get five points, you must inevitably have to get minus five. If If you get three points, I have to get minus three. Football fans, Uh, We know, particularly those of us who follow teams that tend to linger around the lower ends of the leagues, we know what a six-pointer match is. Two teams close to each other in the league, around the bottom, and they play each other, usually towards the end of the season. And the the point is, it's a six-pointer because the winning team, it doesn't just get the three points in the league that they win, it's as though they've also got the three points that the other team failed to win. The zero-sum game. And so the ten disciples, they think that if James and John win, that they lose. If James and John succeed, that they fail. If James and John get fame, they only get shame. If James and John get to be served, they will have to serve. And they cannot bear it. You know, as far as the world is concerned, that is basically how it works. Jesus now brings the disciples together for what must have been a very awkward team talk. He says, yes, he says, in the world, greatness is all about making others serve you. Verse 42, he says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their officials exercise authority over them. In other words, greatness among the, just in the world generally is measured by how many staff you have working for you. In what circles you are celebrated, what titles and degrees and honours buttress your name, how much money you have to accomplish what you want to do. But then Jesus comes, he takes a crowbar and he jams it into that whole way of thinking and yanks on it with all his might and says, verse 43, not so with you. Not so with you. Jesus's death, you see, has turned greatness on its head. Verses 43 to 45. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first 
must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many to serve. True greatness is to imitate Jesus who came to serve, ultimately through his saving death. Now, it's possible at this point to take a, a, a wrong turning and to misunderstand what Jesus is saying and to think, ah, oh, thanks Jesus, you're giving me some great advice here, a new method of getting to the top. We could think to ourselves, it would be perverse, but we could think to ourselves, well, I'm going to make sure that I spend my life serving harder than anybody so that then in the eternal kingdom I can look down on all those suckers who I want served and then they will be sucking up to me because I serve them now. They'll be serving me then. Ha ha, I win. But of course, Jesus isn't just giving us a new way to reach an old goal. He has demolished whole way of thinking about human greatness. The whole way that makes it a matter of doing better than others, having, being more than them. Just imagine the martyrs around the heavenly throne squabbling about which one of them gave up the most for Jesus. You know, St. Polycarp comes out and says, well, I suffered. I was an old man when I suffered. And then um, the Reformation martyrs come out and say, well, oh, we were burned at the stake, for goodness sake. And then they go, no, but hang on a minute, it took me longer to burn. It's, it would be absurd. Of course it's not like that. Imagine the army of missionaries in heaven uh, f- fighting over the pecking order in which one sacrificed and achieved the most for Jesus through their service. No, the whole way of thinking has got to go. See, amazingly, the things, the truth is that the things we instinctively think are great actually aren't. So again, the things we think are great actually aren't. Bigger than is not greater than. Better than is not really great. Shinier than, more impressive than. It actually doesn't count. These are like, these are like coins from a, ancient currency that's long since gone out of, gone out of business. Well, that's not what currencies do, you know what I mean. Currency is just gone. This is of no, mon- no value in Jesus' kingdom. Now, I know that it still looks great, and we still tend to want it. Now, I don't know what badges of honor means something to you, what badges of honor you wish that you could just put on your lapel and wear with pride. I know, I know myself, I know my own um, world that I move in, the circles I move in. I know, I know what it's like to crave badges that mean something to me and to, li- li- I mean crave them, to crave them so intensely that the prospect of not having them would make life feel pointless. I know what that feels like. Do you know what that feels like? Bet some, some of you listening, I bet you do. If you don't, maybe know yourself a little bit better. They're there, these things. We crave them. But the truth is that God barely even notices whether we have these coveted prizes or not. Our power, our status, our profile. You can look on social media at our profiles and all the 
things there or LinkedIn or whatever with all our list of achievements and things like that. It, to us, it's a massive deal and it can drive us. But it is just a whole load of hot air to God that he barely even sees. Hot air. You know, the devil has actually been bellowing that hot air into the world from the moment he turned against God and dragged us with him. Serving in heaven to him, it was intolerable to Satan's ego. He preferred to reign, even if it meant doing so in hell. And he has set up an honours system to reward those intent on following his agenda. And it does seem very rewarding. Applause, fame, power, authority, titles. Satan has inflated a balloon that is filled with pride and envy and arrogance and cruelty and abuse. But the cross has burst it. Along came the most powerful person of all, preeminent, superlative in every way. Jesus has a status far beyond anything the world's most ambitious people could ever dream of. But he exchanged all the shining glory of heaven for shame on earth. Infinite power for weakness. The world says, me first. He puts others first. He had the right to be served by every single creature in this universe, but he chose to serve, giving his life to win freedom for those enslaved in this cursed system. God has abolished the world's system of greatness. He's abolished it at the cross. He mocks it. Paul puts it like this in one of the most extraordinarily profound passages that has ever been written anywhere. 1 Corinthians 1.20, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Do we believe that? Do we actually believe that? He's made foolish the wisdom of the world. And that needs to change the ambitions of all his followers. As Paul puts it in another letter, the letter to the Galatians, by the cross he says, I am crucified to the world and the world to me. It's like he's now in a whole new life. All the old ambitions that once drove him belong to an old life, gone. Except, of course, the problem is that like zombies, these ambitions walk around, tempting us still. And the James and John attitude creeps in, even as we try to follow Jesus. Now, I used to read, from years I read this passage with a patronizing attitude, thinking, oh, how could they be so grossly, so crass, so wor grossly worldly? Isn't it? It's all so obvious. <laughs> it isn't. That's a mistake. James and John, listen, listen to this carefully, James and John probably think they're being godly. See, they, they want Jesus to reign. They believe that he will reign. Only let them be there too. And after all, they, they could have reasoned it to themselves. What, what could they do with those seats of influence? They could exercise such ministry from his right hand and his left hand. It would be so good if only they could have those positions. Yes, it's self-centered, but they ask it in very, very Christian terms. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Diane Lamberg is an American Christian psychologist who has done brilliant work on the misuse of power in the church. She writes, we can use spiritual language to cloak selfish ambition, 
hide abuses of many kinds, and do incalculable damage in the name of God. Now this, of course, is topical if you follow the, the, the media, particularly the Christian media. Several major Christian figures have recently been exposed as abusers of power in the United States, but also here in the United Kingdom. Highly gifted people, incredibly gifted people, who have all the right language, but it has not been their driving ambition to serve others. They have looked instead to be served. James and John, they are a warning sign for everyone who claims to follow Jesus to ask ourselves the question, all of us, what is actually driving our lives? I'm really asking you, as I ask myself, what is really driving on us? Reflect on it. Ask God's Spirit to show you what is really driving us. Now, it's true that our motives won't be 100% pure until we see Jesus face to face. They won't be. But that very fact should make us vigilant to recognize when those unworthy motives are creeping in. And it should make us ruthless in keeping them out of the driving seat, refusing to let them sit there. So, I mean, just ask yourself, have you been envious that someone is more gifted than you? Resentful at their success? Or secretly delighted when someone you consider a rival, they could even be a friend, fails? Have you ever caught yourself busily serving in church, just hoping that someone is watching you, seeing what you're doing? Have I ever craved praise for acts of Christian service? Recognizing these self-centered agendas, it's so important. But just recognizing them, that's only the beginning. These desires are as, they're powerful tyrants and they enslave us. The answer to them the only way we can overcome this is verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the secret at the heart of it. Before we can serve him, we need to let him serve us. He gave his life as a ransom to liberate us. He pays the price of God's eternal judgment against us and thereby he breaks us free from the power of Satan and of self. So come to the cross where Jesus died. Don't just come for education, come for transformation to the cross of Jesus. Stand near it by faith and trust that you have been bought as a price and you are no longer your own, and it is no longer either right or desirable to run life by your own agenda, because you're not your own. You're bought, redeemed, ransomed. Believe that you are free, not to be governed by desires and ambitions that promise to make you something, but actually reduce you to nothing. Jesus is now, at this very moment, raised in heaven, he's present with us by the Holy Spirit, and he still asks each one of us, what do you want me to do for you? What's your request? What's my request? Let it be something like this. Let it be. Ask him to set you free from sin's tyrannical power through the blood he shed 
for your ransom. And then ask him, who can you serve today? And how can you do it most effectively to meet their needs and bless them? Let's pray for that now. Search us, O God. So often these motives are hidden even from ourselves, in fact, especially from ourselves. We pray that you will reveal these truths about what's really driving us to each one of us. And then, by the power of the blood Jesus shed as our ransom, deliver us from the tyrannical power of self so that we may serve you today and others really to the glory of your name and not our own. All this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.